Our first reading tonight is taken from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy holy seed will be the stump in the land. And our second reading is John 12. From verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This is God's word. Before we begin, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, as always, needing your help as you address us, needing your help to hear me, needing your help to speak, all of us needing your help to to understand, to apply and to live in light of what you tell us. Please help us, please change us this evening. Amen. Okay, this week saw the release of David Cameron's, Nick Clegg's and of course the the Kardashians Christmas cards. Major news, all the, all the furore about whether there's kind of secret Illuminati signs hidden in the Kardashian Christmas card. 
what, what a load of nonsense. Uh, and it, it led one commentator I read to, to, to write this about it. It says, uh, Christmas cards used to be about mangers, kings, and shepherds. Then they became about robins. Then about reindeer. Now they are about us. Now, I don't know, a little bit ironic because there was a link in that article to another uh, article in the same newspaper kind of contradicting that claim about how Christmas cards had evolved in that direction. So I'm not too sure what to make of it, but it does seem to me fairly um, a fairly easy claim to make that as we, as we look around in London, as we look around in the West today at Christmas time, Jesus doesn't seem to get much of a look-in anymore, does he? I mean, uh, that's not a controversial thing to say. Um, you know, flick through the glossy pages of the, of the Saturday papers, walk down Piccadilly, go into Morrison's, walk past the, you know, Simpsons or One Direction advent calendars, and you realize that really Jesus doesn't get much of a look-in. I've got nothing against One Direction, by the way, Okay. <laughs> I might even know someone who has two of their songs hidden away on a Spotify playlist. That's me. (laughs) But, you know, preparing this sermon did give me cause to stop, cause cause to reflect, actually, on, on how I feel, actually, on how I feel living in uh, a country with, with Christian roots, living in a country that has a Christian heritage, you know, what, whatever exactly that does mean, and to see it slowly, year by year, drift away from that heritage. I've been thinking to myself as I've been preparing this sermon, you know, how does that make me feel? And I'll be honest, it gets to me. You know, not, not often or always in a kind of, oh, that's terrible. How can they have a One Direction advent calendar? Not always, not always in that kind of way. Or of, more often, I suppose, in a kind of, uh, and sometimes I think quite, in quite an acute way. It gets to me in the sense, gosh, maybe all those people who don't believe in Jesus at all, maybe they're right. I'll be honest, I I have those thoughts, I have those doubts sometimes. That lack of belief in the culture around me, it it has a corrosive effect on my own faith. You know, believe in magic and sparkle goes the Marks and Spencers advert this year. And I think, gosh, maybe, maybe I have as a Christian. Isn't the unbelief around me a sign? If not that uh, quite that God doesn't exist, maybe the unbelief you look around in London is a sign that God is is impotent. A sign that far from being omnipotent, as Christians believe, that he a sign in fact that he is impotent. I don't know if I'm alone in having those sort of thoughts. Perhaps if you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you're here tonight looking into the claims of Christianity. You may be like teetering on the brink of, of nailing your colours to the mast and saying, yes, I am a Christian. And I certainly, I, I remember what that feels like. Perhaps you're teetering on the brink of becoming a Christian. And one of the things that stops you is that, is that realize, thinking, you, you look around at the millions of other people in London and you think that they can't all be wrong. 
how could I be crazy enough to think that Christianity is true? Well, this passage has a lot to say of, to us if we are, if we're Christians, sort of, uh, whose faith feels threatened by the unbelief around us, or if we're not Christians who kind of think, I, I could never be crazy enough to believe in something that millions of people don't believe in. This passage has got a lot to say to us. I'm going to be honest, this is a tough passage to preach on. This is a tough, tough truths to declare. It may well be that this is a sort of passage that raises more questions for you than it answers. I'll be, I'll be around afterwards. Please come and grab me if that is the case. Uh, it's a one-off sermon this evening, really, as far as the evening can, as, is concerned. If you've been here in the morning, it kind of follows on with the uh, Awaiting the Glory of Christ sermon series that we've been working through. It's kind of an Advent series. It's the times in the Old Testament where kind of God has appeared in invisible form to teach his people what he's like. Theophanies is the kind of technical theological word for it. I don't know if you noticed in the second reading that Wenner read that John quotes some of the verses from the first reading in Isaiah, and he says that that this image that I, this sorry, this vision that Isaiah saw of the King on the throne, in fact, was Christ. So let's dive in. We're in Isaiah chapter six. Now, a uh, little bit of background. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. So those of you who know your sort of Bible narrative, this is after the, the kingdom split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, but before either of those two kingdoms were taken away by the Assyrians and Babylonians into exile. Okay, that's when, that's when Isaiah is writing. Uh, but by the time he is writing... God has warned his people that judgment is coming, that that exile, being taken out of the land, is not only imminent, but in some sense inevitable as well. And in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet is painted in kind of broad brushstrokes, a bit like an impressionist painting, if you like. The big themes of Isaiah, which which are the people's rebellion, God's judgment, and then in the midst of that, bright glimmers of hope like, like diamonds in the rough, promises of a world being remade. So that's where we, that's where we are as we begin chapter six. At the beginning of chapter six, we get a reference that locates us back into history. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe Filled the temple. And we're on, to our, we're on to our first point if you're following through on the service sheet. The Holy King appears to Isaiah. And that reference when he says in the, key, uh, the year King Uzziah died is actually quite unusual. Normally in the Bible when uh, it makes reference to a, the start of a prophet's ministry, it's normally kind of in the whatever year of King so-and-so. To start it by making reference to his death is a little bit unusual. And it sort of focuses us in on King Uzziah's death. And I won't know this, I had, to, I had to look this up. You can read more about King Uzziah in two chronicles. 
In 2 Chronicles, we learn that actually King Uzziah started very well as a king. He became king when he was 16. Sounds like a terrifying prospect. And we learn that when he started, he, he started by fearing the Lord and listening to instruction. But as is so often the case, as he, as he began to do well, he began to forget God. And in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, we read this, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And there's more to it, but, but the result of that was that God afflicted him with leprosy. And this king who had started so well actually sees out the latter half of his reign, excluded and exiled and quarantined from the temple because of his leprosy. And it's in the year that that king died, the year that the king who was exiled from the temple died, that Isaiah sees this vision of the true king. And so verse 1, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, when you, when you see those pictures of Princess Diana or, or Princess Kate, you see, you see like the, you know, their long, the long robe of their dress, which covers quite a lot of the, the steps of St. Paul's or wherever it is. But here is the image of, of the king so high, so exalted, that just the, just the tail of his robe fills the whole temple. It's an astounding vision in its scope. And then verse 2. Around this throne are a multitude of awesome heavenly creatures. See that verse 2. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. That word seraph, it comes from a Hebrew word which means fire. These are, these are blazing creatures on fire. You know, I kind of think, you know, you think kind of Katniss or Peter in uh, the Hunger Games movies or books or whatever. But that, that is nothing compared to this. And with, and with their wings, they're co- two of them are covering their faces, two they're covering their feet, with two they're flying. I've kind of just done an impression of a seraph there, haven't I? Uh, not really in the script. And you say, well, why, why, are they, why are they covering their faces? Why are they covering their feet? We don't really know, but, it, but it, presumably it's got something to do with a, a humble response about being in the presence of someone so holy. Because verse 3, the true king of the whole earth, holy, 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 these burning ones cry out to each other. Now you may, you may, may know this, in, in Hebrew language you don't have the word for, for very, okay? So if a Hebrew husband wanted to sweet talk his wife, instead of saying, darling, you look very beautiful tonight, he would say, you look beautiful, beautiful tonight. And so when these seraphs are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, they're saying not, not holy, not very holy, but, but supremely holy. This is the Lord who is supreme in his otherness. This is the Lord who is supreme in his purity. They're, they're talking about the true king's total and unique majesty. And then verse 4, at the sound of the cry of the burning ones, the doorposts and the thresholds shake and the temple is filled with smoke. 
And as we go into our second point, Isaiah responds, well, in the only way appropriate, really. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. We're in verse 5. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I say in the, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, uh, the book sort of catalogues all the ways in which the people of Israel have rebelled against God. How they've wandered away from him, like uh, the image is used of a dumb animal, you know, wandering away from its master. How they've made a show of their religion and their ceremony. Meanwhile, their hearts being far, far away from God. And how they've failed to care for the poor among them, all the while trumpeting how religious they are. As I said, blood is on their hands. Now the Lord is holy, holy, holy. But Isaiah knows that he and his people, like their recently deceased king, is is nothing of the sort. He says, woe to me. And then, amazingly, verse 7, a wonderful thing happens. Verse 6, verse 7, a wonderful thing happens. One of the seraphs flew to me, says Isaiah, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. And here's the key, key bit. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah lives among a people of unclean lips and amazingly, wonderfully, God acts to atone for his sin, to wipe away his sin and take away his guilt. And this is, this is atonement, not, not like in the, in the movie or, you know, or the book of the same name where the lead character has to kind of work her whole life to try and purge the mistakes of her past and even then it's kind of a, a hollow, empty atonement. No, this is atonement that is, that is from God, that is instantaneous, that works. It is good news. And we move into our third point. The king gives Isaiah a message to speak. You see, as we move into verse 8, you think, well, well, surely Isaiah is going to be commissioned to take this news that atonement is possible to his people. Look at what he says, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah's just had this amazing thing happen to him and presumably he thinks, yeah, I'm going to be able to go and tell my people that there's forgiveness. And so he's like, you know, pick me, pick me. He says, here I am. Send me. What do you think his face looked like when Isaiah heard the message that he was to take to the people of Judah? Did you notice as it was read out, it is a message that is far from joyful. It's a, it's a terrifying message. God says, verse 8, sorry, verse 9, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. So God says, go, go and tell this people, you're not going to understand. And at first you think, well maybe God, what God is saying is that this is going to be the, the, the result of Isaiah's preaching. The people are not going to listen to you. And, and yes, 
It is the result of Isaiah's preaching. But, but terrifyingly, actually, it's even more than that. God is saying that I want this to be the purpose of your preaching. The message that Isaiah is to preach will not result in spiritual enlightenment, but in spiritual blindness. Let's have a look at verse 10. It moves through various uh, parts of the body. Isaiah's preaching is to make people's hearts calloused, to make their ears dull, to close their eyes, and then repeats it again in the reverse order about eyes, ears, and hearts. But it's that it's that word otherwise in the middle of verse 10 that I find, I find shocking, that challenges me, that well, terrifies me maybe. God is saying do this, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Can it really be saying this? Is this saying that at this point in time when Isaiah is writing, God is giving Isaiah this message precisely because he does not intend for his people to turn to him. Yeah, I, th- I think that is what it is saying. And for hundreds of years, God has, been, God has been kind, God has been patient, God has been loving with his people, coaxing them, wooing them, calling them to live with him as their Lord. And yet time after time, despite God's compassion, despite his patience, despite his abounding love, they've turned their back on him. They've des- uh, desired and they have believed the lie that this holy, holy, holy God is not concerned with sin, does not see their rebellion and will not judge them. And so here, at the end of a very long, a very patient road, God announces the punishment of verses 9 and 10 to a people who do not want to listen to God. It is a punishment that perfectly fits the crime. Because the very message that God gives Isaiah to preach will confirm his people in their unbelief. And indeed, it will, it will compound that unbelief. Wow. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? The Holy King on the throne is giving Isaiah a message that will compound his people's unbelief. And someone will say, God, well, that, that, uh, God, that is so unfair. How can you, how can you give Isaiah a message that, that people can't understand? And, and you, you know, you hear that a lot today, don't you? You hear people saying, oh, why can't, why can't God make himself clearer? Well, actually, if we were to read on in Isaiah, and we, if we got to chapter 28, we'd hear that actually the, the problem is not that this message is complicated, not that you need to be, um, you know, sort of a bearded academic with a PhD in philosophy or theology or something to understand what Isaiah is saying. Actually, the people in Isaiah's day, they, they mocked him precisely for the simplicity of his message. And again, you hear that today, don't you? Often by the people who say, oh, I wish God could, could make himself more clear. You explain the gospel in what you think is, is clear language and people say, oh, that just sounds a bit too simplistic for me. 
You know, Isaiah's message, Isaiah's message was clear, it was simple, there was nothing sort of qualitatively deficient about it. But God knew, God actually even ordained that that message about repentance and judgment would only serve to confirm people in their unbelief. And so as one commentator sums it up, Isaiah's task is to bring the Lord's word with fresh, even unparalleled clarity. But in their response, people would reach the point of no return. So verse 11, Isaiah asked, perhaps perhaps with incredulity, Lord, how long have I got to preach and this be the result of my preaching? And the Lord replies to him, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, judgment is coming, says God, judgment is inevitable. And Isaiah is to keep preaching in the knowledge that this will be people's response. That's not a great job description, is it? But tell me this, as, as he did preach, as he saw this response, as, as Isaiah, Isaiah preached and saw unbelief around him, when people laughed at his message, do you think that Isaiah would have wondered whether God existed or was impotent? No. When Isaiah preached and saw unbelief, I think with, with every person who told him he was too old-fashioned, with every person who told him he was too narrow-minded, Isaiah would have seen not a sign of God's impotence, but of his judgment. You know, that's, that's the key message we get to in, in, in the book of Isaiah. Unbelief is a result of God's judgment, not his impotence. So the obvious question, I think, for us is, well, well, is that the way God still acts? Can we still say that today in the West, in Jewish times? Can we still say that? Can we still say unbelief is a sign of God's judgment, not his impotence? And ultimately, I want to say a a, a cautious and, and nuanced yes. To some extent, we can. But we've got to do a little work before we get there because we can't just um, sort of hop out of the pages of Isaiah and apply them directly to us. And the primary reason for that is that, is that these words are written specifically in Isaiah to, to God's people, the Jews. They are written at the end, as I've just said, at the end of a, of a long and patient journey whereby God was calling to his people, calling to his people, and at the end he said, no, I will confirm you in your unbelief. These words are written particularly to the Jewish nation. And yes, they are. They are quoted in the New Testament. Uh, we had one of those quotes read for us. They're quoted by each of the gospel writers. They're quoted at the end of Acts as well. But actually, each time, they, it does relate to the way that the Jewish nation deliberately and purposefully rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and the way that God said, okay, well, I will confirm you in your unbelief. As far as I can see in the New Testament, the, these words in Isaiah are not applied directly to, to non-Jewish people, uh, to Gentiles, people, people like most of us are in this room. 
So you might say, well, in that case, Matt, why do you think that we can apply this kind of logic that, that unbelief can be a sign of God's judgment, not his impotence to us? And the answer, I think, comes in um, the sort of the wider framework, the wider teaching of Scripture. So t- would you turn up with me Romans chapter 1? We'll just have a quick flick there. Romans chapter 1. Have a listen to this and see if you can spot the similar kind of dynamic as, as what is referred to in Isaiah 6 in what Paul is saying. Paul says uh, of kind of, uh, sort of non-Jewish Gentile society in general. He says, verse 20... Eight. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Did you see the sort of the similarity, the similar dynamic? that's going on there. God hasn't changed. He was holy, holy, holy in Isaiah. He is holy, holy, holy today. He'll be holy, holy, holy tomorrow. He cannot and will not abide sin. And that, that passage in Romans says that when a society thinks that it is not worthwhile to retain knowledge of that holy God or, or listen to his words... Then verse 28, that same holy God will sometimes give that society over to a depraved mind and to doing what ought not to be done. And so when you see a society full of greed, full of envy, verse 29, that, that is a result of God's judgment, says Romans 1, not his impotence. When you see a society full of God-haters, full of pride, full of arrogance, verse 30, that is a sign that God has given that society over to its sinful desire to do what it wants. That is a judgment, again, that fits the crime. That is, that is a result of a holy God's judgment, not his impotence. I don't know, you, you may disagree, ask me about it afterwards, but haven't, haven't we seen that? Uh, certainly in England, probably in most of the West, over, over the years, over the centuries... Now look, I know, I know there was no sort of golden age when everyone in England was Christian and everyone was in church and everyone loved Jesus. I, I know that, okay. But, but we do have a Christian heritage in this country. Over hundreds of years we have had open, sustained access to the Bible, to teachings about Christ. But it's un, it is undeniable, isn't it? And we've seen it this year in our, in our legislation, in our public offices, in our public broadcasting. We see a steady drift away. Just like Paul's talking about in Romans 1. We see a steady drift away from any notion that knowledge about a holy God and what he says to creatures like us would have any bearing on how we live. And Isaiah 6 reminds us, in the context of the whole Bible, 
that when a culture or society turns its back on God, God will sometimes let that culture, that society, believe its own lies. When a culture says in its heart there is no God, God sometimes, in judgment, allows that society to believe its own press releases. When a culture tries to uh, anesthetize itself from having to think about the realities of heaven and hell and judgment by more and more sort of self-sufficient pride in its own achievements, God sometimes, in judgment, allows it to believe its own propaganda. Yeah, I think in certain circumstances, you can't say definitively, but yeah, you can still say unbelief is a sign of God's judgment, not not his impotence. And so as I finish, I just want to want to briefly speak to three groups of people. Firstly, is that group I mentioned at the beginning, anyone here who tonight who is kind of, you know, teetering on the brink of becoming a Christian, of putting their trust in Jesus. And I well remember that when I became a Christian up at university. That feeling of, of thinking, yeah, I, I, I feel that there's, there is something in this Jesus. There is something in Christianity. And yet you look around at the thousands, millions of fellow students who want nothing to do with Jesus and you think, I just can't, it just can't be right. I know that feeling, I know that tension, I know that kind of wavering, that flip-flopping between commitment to Jesus and kind of thinking, I can't because millions of people don't believe in him. And when we do that, we then kind of retreat back, confused into a position of unbelief. Please, please hear this message of Isaiah 6. There's, there's no safety in the numbers of unbelieving people. Because when it comes to society, when it comes to us around us in London, to some extent, perhaps to a large extent, unbelief is a result of God's judgment, not his impotence. Secondly, second group of people, any, anyone here who is a Christian, but yet who is, who is struggling with doubts. And can I say, as clearly as I can, as clearly as you can possibly hear me, I'm not, I'm not thinking, I'm not saying that this passage is, is, is about Christians who, who are struggling with doubt. I'm not saying that if you're having doubts as a Christian, then that is a sign of God's judgment against you. I'm not saying that. Please hear that. We all, we all have doubts from time to time. And yes, when we do, we must ask God if there's any sort of sin we haven't confessed. And if we find that sin, we must there in that instant, as we are able to, repent of that sin. But I'm not saying tonight that if we're wrestling with doubts as a Christian, we can sort of draw a direct line and say, oh, therefore God's judging you. Not at all. This evening we've been talking about unbelief at the kind of macro or societal level. But finally, to all Christians, coming back to where we started, for me, knowing that unbelief is a result of God's judgment, not his impotence, helps me in my faith. It gives me the lens through which to look uh, down Oxford Street, through the glossy pages of the magazine or whatever. It gives me the lens through which to look to interpret unbelief rightly. It gives me the, the lens through which to look and remember that unbelief is not a sign of God's impotence, but of his judgment. A sign not that he is absent, but that he is present.
And doesn't that, doesn't that make me so humble? Doesn't that make me so humble? Because I know, were it not for God's grace in my life, I would happily take my place among the millions of people who want nothing to do with Jesus. If it had not been for God's grace in my life, I would happily sit there and scoff at those who talk about Jesus today. I would happily be one who believes the lie that, that there is no God. So it makes me humble. And it makes me prayerful. Prayerful that God would have mercy on some of the millions around us here in London who don't know, who don't know him. Because there is always hope. Until the day Jesus comes back, there is always hope. We don't have time to look at it, but you can look at it at home. The last verse in Isaiah 6 speaks of a holy seed, a remnant. Yes, yes, unbelief means God's judgment. But in every age, God is working to bring people to himself. In every age, there is yet hope. Atonement that was made for Isaiah's guilt can be made for anyone who trusts in Jesus. And that, so that makes me pray all the more. Makes me pray all the more that God would have grace on the millions of people around us in this city who are blinded, who, who are judged, who are even condemned in their, in their unbelief. There is always hope. Makes me pray that God in his freaking compassion would apply his work of atonement and forgiveness that was won for any who would believe in him on the cross in Jesus' blood and would, and would yet apply it. And so with that, let, let's, let's pray. Let's pray as we heard before. Let's pray as we invite people to carol services. Let's pray that we would have the opportunity to speak about Jesus this Christmas time and that God in his mercy would yet bring people to himself. Let me pray now. Our Father, you are holy, you are holy, 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 and we are humbled as we tremble before this passage that speaks of a God who who is not impotent but omnipotent, whose reign, whose majesty, whose power knows no limits, can be thwarted by nothing. And we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us, those of us who are trusting in you. And we pray that you would have mercy on many who aren't, even this Christmas time. Amen.